As those baskets are making their way around, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 20. Of course, the NFL playoffs are going on right now. And last weekend, a man named Cody Parkey, who was kicker, is kicker for the Chicago Bears, entered the historic annals of infamous sports blunders of Chicago fame. So the Chicago Bears are playing the Philadelphia Eagles at storied Soldier Field. There was three seconds to go. The Bears were down two. They were looking at a 42-yard field goal to end 20 years of playoff futility. And so they line up. The ball is snapped. Perfect snap. Perfect hold. The sky is clear. The kick goes up. Going towards the goal post 42 yards away, all of Chicago holds its collective breath. Maybe this will be the, the year that we kind of kind of shun our demons and, and get back to the glory days of Chicago Bears football. But then that ball, of course, begins to slowly drift left. And you could just hear the whole stadium in this collective gasp. And is this ball going to make it? Is it going through the uprights? It hits first the left upright, which is usually typically a death knell for all field goal kicks. But in this particular instant, it careened back towards the goal post, at which time it hit for a second time on the crossbar, perched perilously right on the edge. Which way is it going to fall? And of course, those of you who saw it know it was what? No good. And Chris Collinsworth, the commentator, coined the now infamous term, it was the Chicago double doink, twice off the goalpost. And you would have thought this man had committed murder. I mean, Chicago Bears fans were posting, they were rioting, they wanted to burn the house down, they called moving trucks to this man's house. I mean, he can never, ever, ever show his face again clearly because his name will now live in infamy. But little known on Monday morning, we discovered that not was all as it appeared. As they were replaying the scene and putting it in slow motion, you realized that in fact the Eagles had actually tipped the ball at the line of scrimmage, diverting it ever, ever so slightly by mere inches, thus letting us all know, realizing that this miss was not all about this man. Now, it doesn't change the outcome, but it does give us a new perspective, doesn't it, on a familiar storyline. And I think that's a good metaphor for what we have today in our passage in John chapter 20. We come to the one of the most infamous, I do say infamous passages of Scripture in the Old and New Testament, the story of Doubting Thomas, who is a perpetrator of one of the greatest blunders of biblical history, right? Right up there with Adam and Eve eating the apple and Elijah running away from Jezebel and Peter denying Jesus. You know, his name will go down in infamy. But I'm going th- to say, as we saw with Cody Parker, the kicker, there's much more here to this story than meets the eye. In fact, I think that there's a whole nother side to this passage and why John included it for us that's super important for our spiritual lives and our discipleship and our walks. And, and so I invite you to simply meet Thomas. And that's where we're going this morning. I'm going to invite you to stand as we, as we read this passage. We're going to begin in verse 24. 
and read through verse 31. You simply must meet him. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. So Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This ends the reading of God's word. May he write its truths upon our heart. You may be seated. Last week, we saw how Thomas missed the party. Jesus appeared the night of the day of his resurrection to the ten. Thomas was not there. Jesus had given the disciples a commission. So as God has sent me, I am sending you. And to this whole scenario, John MacArthur Riley notes that The reason Thomas finds himself in this pickle is that he missed church and thus missed Jesus' sermon. So he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, we're going to talk a good bit about Thomas this morning, and he is a fascinating case study. Yet make no mistake, Four Oaks, this passage is not primarily about Thomas. He believed This passage is primarily about you, and it's about me. And we now come to John 20, verse 30 and 31, full circle from when we started some two years ago, where John says very clearly why he's writing. He says, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And you may be saying, well, well, Pastor Paul, I'm way ahead of you here because I do believe. And, and I believed all my life, and I believed when I was nine, and I walked the aisle, and I was baptized, and I tossed the pine cone in the fire and nailed my sin to the cross. And the whole, I, I, I've done that, been there, done that. This isn't really for me. Now, one of the things that's interesting about the, the verb usage here is that it means not merely believe, although it does, believe, it, all it does, it does mean that. For those of you who haven't believed, John's calling us to believe. But the nature of the, of the verb tense seems to indicate that not only believe, but if you believe, keep on believing. See, one of the things that, that we come to know from this gospel of John is that believing is not a one-time deal. It's not a one-time, fire stamp, a one-time stamp to get our fire insurance protection and then we go on and live our lives the way we want. No, belief is an ongoing, active, fluid dynamic reality where we take hold of Jesus every day. John's admonition to us this morning is keep on believing. 
And as we're going to see in this text, there's something about the story of Thomas that's of critical, vital importance in our fight for faith, in our ongoing journey to persevere. And so just two points this morning. Number one, a crushing doubt. And then number two, a decisive confession. Okay, a crushing doubt. Look at verse 27. If you want to know why this story has traditionally been known, been known as doubting Thomas, verse 27 tells us, Jesus tells him, Thomas, do not disbelieve, but believe. Now, some of your translations may say, do not doubt. But the word literally means, do not be turned. Do not be divided. Do not be double-minded. And here's what's interesting about this, Four Oaks, that this is not a request. This is not an offer. This is not an invitation. This this charge to stop doubting and start believing is actually a command. And, and as, as postmodern 21st century folks, this should get our attention because this really runs counter to a lot of the ways that we are sort of taught to think about doubt. See, in many quarters of culture, doubt is now a good thing. It is chic to doubt. And often it's very commonplace, even in certain camps within the church, to trumpet this idea of doubt. You know, you may hear things like, you know, we can't really know for certain exactly what was going on 2,000 years ago and how it applies to us. You know, we, we, we see through a prism, and, and, we, and we, we see through a glass yet dimly. And, and, and all of us come from a background, a particular perspective. All of us see things from our vantage point. So we have to be very, very careful not to proclaim absolute certainty about much of anything. In fact, to be certain, to have conviction and to speak with confidence, that could be pride. That could be arrogance. And so we need to be encouraged as God's people. Let's question traditional truths, orthodox truths, things that we've taught and accepted for 2,000 years. Now, here's the problem with that kind of celebration of doubt. And, and some of you are super familiar with it. There's been whole movements and theological shifts built upon that sort of thinking. Here's the problem. The problem is that the people who are proclaiming uncertainty the loudest seem to be the most certain about what they're saying. Isn't that interesting? You can see where it's self-defeating that, and we want to ask them, if, you were, if we were all, if you're certain that we were so all wrong before, how can you be certain that you're not wrong now? See, see, this kind of thing, this kind of doubt, it sounds humble, it sounds self-abasing, it sounds, it sounds lowly, it sounds contrite, but make, make no mistake, folks, it is really pride in disguise. It is skepticism. It is skepticism masquerading as humility. In fact, oftentimes doubt of that variety is just a move to get around the very clear claims of Scripture. I, I come across something the Bible says about sexuality or about marriage or about divorce or, or something like that, and, and ew, I, I, I wish it said something else. So, hmm, did God really say? We, 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 
We can't know these things for certain. We live in a, in a post-modern culture. Now, now, the question, is that the kind of doubt Thomas has? Is Thomas a skeptic? Is Thomas just a brooding post-modern hipster with a cappuccino in one hand and a copy of Nietzsche in the other? Is that, is that Thomas? I don't think so. And I think John provides us some clues as to why. Thomas is mentioned a couple other times in John's gospel. Interesting what John says about him. Look at John eleven sixteen. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Thomas is, sounds a little foreboding, doesn't it? A little sober, a little lighten up, Thomas. Come on, man. Okay. John 14, 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? I mean, you can just, you can just hear. I mean, clearly Thomas has a disposition towards some kind of melancholy or melodramatics, right? He, he's, he's what I would call the Eeyore of the Apostles. And the fact that he isn't there the first time when Jesus comes implies something. See, I think Thomas is dealing with a different kind of species of doubt altogether, and it's one that you and I are so familiar with, and it's crushing doubt. It's the doubt of disappointment. It's the doubt of putting all of your eggs in one basket and thinking something is the case only to find out that it is not. See, Thomas has put all of his hopes in this man. Three years, day and night, he has spent with Jesus. He's vested his life. He's seen the miracles. He's heard the promises. This is a poker game. Thomas is all in. He's moved all of his chips to the middle of the table. And now he hears these disciples saying, well, you know, Thomas, you ought to give Jesus a second chance because he's not really dead. And Thomas is, I think, saying, I I just don't know if I can trust it again. Fool me once, shame on you, but fool me twice, shame on me. And you hear this sort of brokenness, this crushed spirit in verse 27 when he says, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger to the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. This is not the cry of defiance. This is the cry of brokenness. This is the cry of crushed dreams. And if you've lived any amount of time, maybe you can relate. See, a lot of us, maybe a lot of you, came in here this morning with some sort of trust issue between you and God. Something that you feel like God had promised, something that you feel like by divine right should be yours, but in somehow, some way, God has not come through. God has said no, or maybe you feel like God hasn't said anything. Because here's a dynamic that I think we see for people who stop believing. And this is where the story of Thomas is very pertinent to us. People who stop believing, who, who drift away. It's not because one day they wake up and say, yesterday I believed in the authoritative word of God and I placed my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, but today I don't believe it. Today I'm, I'm, I'm leaving this behind. This is an irrelevant book. It's written for, it's, it's antiquated. It's not, it's not for me. That, that doesn't happen overnight. See, people stop believing 
oftentimes with a crushing disappointment. See, God didn't give me the spouse I dreamed of or that I think I deserve, and and I'm going to come up with all sorts of hermeneutical gymnastics to explain why it's okay for me to divorce them and be with someone else. Or my child has rejected Jesus. And I know what John 14, 6 says about Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life, but that just, I, I, that just feels unbearable. And so I'm going to kind of rework my theology to kind of match the situation in my life. Or maybe it's, you know, God's given me these desires to act out in these specific ways. And of course, God would want me to be happy. Of course, it would be inconsistent for me not to, to live these desires out. So I'm going to bend my doctrine. I'm going to accommodate God's word to my doubt. I'm going to accommodate God's word to the crushing disappointments that are a part of my life. And this is what happens when people fall away. This is what happens when people shipwreck their faith. This is why Paul pleaded and said, Demas, he has abandoned me. He's walked away. He stopped believing because he's fallen in love with the world. See, he felt like there was something the world offered him that Jesus could not. Let me just say something as we, as we continue here. God welcomes this morning all doubters. God is bigger than your doubts. Oftentimes, don't we feel, we feel like, Peter, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. All that's totally true wherever you are whether you're having a shake-your-fist kind of doubt at God or an existential kind of doubt that Thomas has or an evidentiary doubt. But I think one thing this text makes clear is God doesn't want us, God doesn't want you to live in a place of acute, ongoing, pervasive doubt that will cause you to be shifted to and fro by every wind and wave of doctrine. That's why this is a command Stop doubting, start believing. See, folks, we, we have things to do in this life. As we talked about last week, we're on mission. God has called us to be parents and husbands and fathers and mothers and brothers and to work and to provide and to labor and minister. That's not possible if we're just sort of perpetually over in the corner in the fetal position Sucking our thumb, leading intro to philosophy from our college days, right? It's, it's, it's not possible. Understand that it's like a it's like football analogy. If you're going to be a running back, every coach will tell you, when you get the ball, you are to what? Hit the hole hard. That's what running backs do unless they play for Tennessee. But they hit the hole hard. You can't tiptoe up to the line as a running back. Why? You're going to get your block knocked off, right? You have to hit it hard. Jesus, now this is important, he meets you right where you are with your doubt, wherever you are. But he does so in order to move you towards a decisive confession. And that's our second point. Look at verse 27. Here we have Jesus inviting Thomas to touch his wounds. Now, this has given rise to all sorts of famous works of art, a particular one from the Renaissance 
um, Caravaggio, which is called, and we got it up there, The Incredulity of Thomas. This is a very famous painting. And, and here you have it. Jesus is parting his robe. Thomas is sticking his finger into the thing. And you can just see kind of the incredulous look on Thomas like he's got a magnifying glass and he's just making sure, making pop, making sure that this is in fact Jesus. Here's the, here's the problem. In most com- in, when, when you want to say something controversial, just say most commentators, okay? Most commentators, this is true though, agree Thomas most likely did not touch Jesus. See, there, there's no mention of this in the text. Think about all the things that John, the apostle, is super specific about as an eyewitness in this gospel. If Thomas had actually boop, put his finger in the side, in the hand, certainly John would have mentioned it. But instead, what John does is he emphasizes what comes after in verse 28. Jesus says, put your finger here, Thomas. Do not believe, but disbelieve. And it's almost as if Thomas immediately, spontaneously, it just tumbles out of his mouth. Look at verse 28. My Lord and my God. That's what John emphasizes. Well, Tim Keller and explaining, and he asked a great question. This was super helpful to me. I hope it'll be helpful to you. Why this story? In other words, why this particular story has John included here at the, at the peak, the, the, the climax of the entire book? See, chapter 20, is, that's how it's supposed to function. It's, it's supposed to function, the, the disciples believe, now you believe. Here's the climax. Chapter 21 is kind of the epilogue, kind of cleans up some loose ends with, with Jesus and Peter and that sort of thing. And Keller asked, why is that story right here at the climax of the book? Now, the traditional answer verse 20, has been found in verse 29. People have said, well, this is a warning. This is, this is, this is sort of a, 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 a side rebuke to Thomas that, that we're blessed because we believe, even though we haven't seen, but Thomas, he had the benefit of seeing Jesus and he's not so blessed, right? That, that, that's kind of that's, that, that's the, the flavor this passage often takes on. And Keller makes a point, and I think he's right, that, that that's not the point here at all. Number one, do you realize that as an apostle, it was absolutely necessary for Thomas to see Jesus? Because that was the prerequisite for being an apostle. You had to have been with Jesus during his ministry, you had to see the risen, resurrected Christ, and you had to be commissioned to go. In fact, we know this is exactly what happened to the apostles, that based upon their eyewitness testimony, hey, the apostles got the royal treatment. They got to see the risen Christ. They had to be absolutely sure because they were going to go stick their necks on the line. They're, we're here because of them, humanly speaking. And so Thomas had to see Jesus face-to-face. See, that's not the reason, this kind of, this idea of a, of, a, of a rebuke, that's not why John has included this story here. Keller makes the point, and I think this is right as well. This story is included here because here in Thomas's confession, we have, let me just put it this way, there's nothing else in Scripture to rival it. Theologians agree, this is probably the, the, the grandest, the highest confession of faith we ever see on the part of any single person 
in all of Scripture when Thomas says, my Lord and my God. Now, these identities and titles are not entirely new. You know this if you've been studying with us in John. Thomas has seen Jesus do many things. Feed the 5,000 with a stale piece of bread. He had raised Lazarus. He had, he had produced the wine at Canaan. He had heard Jesus talk about being the great I am. That, none, of, none of that was, was, was necessarily new. But something happens here in this interaction with Jesus that transforms and changes Thomas forever. And we want to know what that is. A lot of times, people who have near-death experiences talk about how their life sort of flashes before their eyes. And I've had an opportunity over the last 20 years or so to talk to two different people who were in near-catastrophic plane, uh, airplane accidents, one in a commercial airliner that ended up almost going down over the Atlantic Ocean, was mere feet above the water, another that was in a private plane, and that was going down in flames. And in both situations, both people said, told me, I actually had remarkable clarity during that time. Both of them ended up sharing their faith with people who were on the plane. It, there, there's nothing like a crisis that puts things into absolute perspective. Thomas is having a similar experience Everything that's happened over the last three years has crystallized into this one particular moment. And and there's, there's two things that converge. The first is that he is convinced this is Yahweh. This is not a tribal God. This is not a territorial God. This is not one among many gods. This is the God. This is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This is the God of the Old Testament This is the sovereign, this is the all-knowing, the self-existent God of the universe. This came full force on to Thomas. But yet, now, not only that, he doesn't merely say, Lord and God, as from a distance, admiring the work he's done. What does Thomas say? My Lord and my God. And see, I don't think it was just seeing the resurrected Jesus that prompted Thomas to say this. See, Thomas, when Jesus walks into the room, after he says, peace with you, what is the first thing Jesus does? He looks right at Thomas and says, Thomas. And you can better believe at that point, Thomas is looking for a place to crawl, right? And he says, Thomas, all the things that you were hoping in the depths of your heart, all those things you were telling yourself, all the things that you told the disciples in private, all those fears, all those doubts, all that disbelief, all that cynicism, all that crushed spirit. I know you, Thomas. So here's my hands. Here's my side. Here's my feet. Jesus had literally read his mind. Jesus, to put a term, saw right through Thomas. He read Thomas from cover to cover just like that, and Thomas knew it. See, all the miracles that Thomas had witnessed over the previous three years had been miracles out there for someone else. But this was the supreme miracle. Not that Jesus raised from the dead or, I mean, 
That would not have been unexpected for Thomas. What was unexpected is that Jesus, he knew at that moment that Jesus knew him. Jesus was raised for him. And he comes out with what is the most extraordinary confession of faith in the whole New Testament. My Lord and my God. See, I don't think Thomas meandered over to Jesus and said, well, let me take a look. Okay? I think we ought to repaint that thing. Okay? Thomas on his knees, right? But the issue is not Thomas this morning. The issue is you. Who do you say Jesus is? Can you say this morning, my Lord and my God? He is my boss. He is the controlling reality of my life. In him and him alone, I place my faith and confidence, and I want to continue to trust and follow him. Three application points. Do this real quickly, and we're done. Number one, these are all related to doubt. Number one, go to God's people with your doubts. Go to God's people with your doubts. Notice something about Thomas here after this initial episode. Where was Thomas when Jesus showed up? Doubting Thomas, where was he? He was with the disciples. What was he doing? Praying, seeking God, talking with the disciples, fellowshipping, wrestling through his doubts with and through his body and community. Let me just say something. If you are having doubts this morning about God, those doubts will not be resolved apart from him. It's just like a marriage relationship. 1 Corinthians 7, there's a time to be separated. There's a time to be apart for a season for the, for the purpose of coming back together. But you know you're never going to make ultimate headway in your marriage unless you are actually what? Married to them in relationship to them, walking through things with them. And it's the same thing with with doubt. God invites us. Let me put it this way. You're not going to go off for a week and find yourself and resolve all of your doubts about God and come back brand new. That's not how that works. Thomas was in community. Thomas was with God's people. Come to the community of God with your doubts, number one. Number two, understand the gospel is at work even in your doubts. One of the amazing things is that in the middle of Thomas's doubt, it's Jesus, Jesus, who initiates. It is Jesus who appears. It is Jesus who speaks. It is Jesus who who invites. It is Jesus who pursues Thomas at his greatest point of doubt and weakness. You see, Jesus is bigger than your doubts. Another thing Tim Keller says about this I think is really good. Folks, learn to doubt your doubts. You know, a lot of times we put so much authority, so much weight on our doubts. And again, that's just another form of pride and self-sufficiency. Doubt your doubts. Know that Jesus is bigger than, bigger than those doubts and that the gospel is at work even in the midst of your doubts. Remember, it's not, ultimately, your doubts are not what define you. It's not your colossal failures. It's, it's not your epic disasters. It's about the grace of Jesus Christ.
Jesus says, just entrust yourself to me. Last and final point, this story of doubt, make no mistake, is meant to move you to a point of clarity and decision, one way or the other. Either he's your Lord and your God, or he's nothing. He's insignificant. There there is no middle ground. As Keller would say, crown me or kill me. But don't domesticate me. Don't don't act like we can just have this peaceful coexistence relationship. If I truly am the son of God, that has implications for you and you and you and for me. Is he your Lord? Is he your God? There is a blessing, there is a benediction that that Jesus speaks over you now 2,000 years later. Blessed are those here who have not seen and yet have believed. And we believe because God has given his word, given us his word with the authority and the testimony of those first apostles. He's given us his Holy Spirit, which opens our eyes to who Jesus is and binds our hearts to him. And because of those two things, this morning, Jesus gives us a command. Stop doubting. Acknowledge me as your Lord and your God. Let's pray.